Hello and welcome to Music Speaks. This podcast dedicates itself to how music impacts people's lives. For the show, we usually have two co-hosts, myself, Hunter Sagona, and my friend, Sean Kunis. Sean and I believe that many people have a playlist that makes their life unique through music. We pride ourselves on building upon our musical knowledge with our featured guests, jamming to incredible music, talking about a wide variety of artists and composers, and everything in between. Here's our quote of the day. What has keys but can't listen to the beauty it unlocks? The piano. Jared Kintz. Today we will sit down with piano superstar Junwen Liang. Chinese-born pianist Junwen Liang began his piano studies at nine and made his solo debut at the age of 13. He earned a Bachelor of Music in Piano Performance at Ithaca College, where he received a full scholarship and a Master of Music at Indiana University, Jacobs Schools of Music, with appointed and associate prof- uh, professor in piano. Junwen has performed in major cities from China, Canada, and the United States. His achievements include the most recent two-time concert appearances at Carnegie Hall and Kimmel Center in Philadelphia, and a public broadcast performance of Prokofiev's third piano concerto with Ithaca College Orchestra on WSKG Radio in New York State. He was also invited to participate in music festivals such as Lunin Guiana International Music Festival, Baltimore International Piano Festival, Philadelphia Young Pianist Academy, Orford Music, Art of the Piano, and Aspen Music Festival and won major prizes in multiple competitions such as the American Prize, Nouvelles Etoiles, International Music Competition in France, the Julius Zabreski International Piano Competition in Poland, New York International Piano Competition, the Chopin International Piano Competition in Hartford, and Crescendo International Music Competition. Junwen is currently pursuing a Doctoral of Music Arts Degree at Penn State, where he serves as graduate teaching assistant in piano and studies with Christopher Guzman. His other mentors include Karis Damaris, Edward Auer, and Robert Plano. And additional summer studies with Gabriel Kodos and Gary Grafman. Junwen's next concert engagement features a concerto performance with Bright Bows String Ensemble in orchestra from Russia. Wow, that's a heck of a resume. Yeah. So, Sean, how do you know Jun Wen? I am lucky to know him for one semester <laughs> at <laughs> Ithaca College. And the buzz that people had around him being just one of the greatest musicians out there would just be absolutely true. Um, and he is so incredible. And I, I think we're so lucky to have him on the podcast today. Very cool. So without further ado, let's discuss music with June Wen. All right, June Wen, thank you so much for being here today. Yeah, thank you for having me, Sean. So my first question, June Wen, is you have an incredible resume. Really an amazing resume. Um, And you've worked with some really amazing musicians and teachers to mentors. Um, What do you say the best advice that you ever had gotten from someone and 
what would that advice be to a young pianist? Um, I think my best advice would give to the young pianist definitely uh, never um, doubt what you can, uh, what your capability is, and always mm -hmm. embrace your limit, embrace your flaws, and also knowing how you, much you can challenge yourself because you. Um, I believe everyone has so much to um, to uh, to to be discovered, and I think this also my my former teacher back in Indiana University as well as my current teacher they always encourage me just to do more and just embrace everything that i do well and everything i do badly but at the same time just always knowing that okay i can do more i can definitely challenge myself into a further level so yeah right. definitely i would encourage young pianists to always challenge themselves right and it was really entertaining reading through your resume about how I had to read every single competition that you've done. Um, and so <laughs> that was pretty, pretty amazing. Um, do competitions feel easier now that you've done so many? Um, I will say as I'm getting older and preparing for competition is definitely much harder just because at this mm -hmm. point that you have to make sure that everything needs to be solid. And especially during COVID um, period, everything has to be sent remote. Um, for recordings and or, or you just have to play through um like live stream and platforms so but you have to make sure that everything you need to sound very well prepared like you, you sometimes you don't you don't have to you, you just need to allow yourself to like play more and also just like mm -hmm. make sure that you don't sound like with any kind of like mistake or something so i think it's very like nerve-wracking and also having too much pressures in like mentally prepared mm -hmm. so um yeah i would say it's definitely much more um challenging yeah right do you get more anxious performing live or performing uh virtually that you have to record um i think it's def it's kind of a different level of feeling um anxious mm -hmm. of comparing to performing live or and um, virtually i would say i will feel much more anxious of performing live just because i tend to get very mm -hmm. extremely nervous uh, on stage it's also especially if you have like a bunch of well-known on judges just sitting um in the audience and they're just trying to listen to all everything that you can pre um, prepare for them so definitely yes mm -hmm. but i think um there's another level of feeling anxious within um like preparing a virtually it's that like you always think about oh whether if the network is working well or whether if you have um good uh, facility to record things to pre uh, prepare for so just have to make sure that everything needs to go through smoothly without having any kind of like technical um issue so yeah definitely i would say just it definitely feel anxious in both ways <laughs> Right. Cool. Yeah. I honestly feel more anxious recording because I feel like when I'm playing, I always feel like I need to nitpick what I'm doing, but in performances, I don't feel like I have to do that so much. Mm -hmm. So maybe while you're playing, do you feel like um, you're less nitpicky when you're recording or do you feel more nitpicky after you watch something? Um, I, I would say I would feel more, um, much more picky um, to, after mm -hmm. I finish recording and listen to it. And then that would, I would, Definitely just like, okay, I need to record it one more time or maybe to record a couple of takes, just make some comparison. But yeah, definitely I would say um, it's just 
always no cracking that like you have when you when you record something or when you're performing live it, you also feel the same time as well but i think during the moment as uh you just play through the pieces i would say i would feel less nervous so it's always like towards the end i would feel like okay i think i do have a better taste but as soon as i start listening to at the beginning it's like oh maybe i just need to record another take and see what happens <laughs> You have a lot of really amazing pieces today that we're going to talk about. Um, and I feel like you've played some of them before, I'm, I'm assuming, right? Uh, yes. Yeah. And with all those pieces come really great composers and artists and um, performers. Um, and a question I love asking guests on the show is, if you had to talk to one of these composers, artists, performers, um, I mean, in any age or any uh, generation, um, what would you ask them and maybe what would you want to be doing with them at that at that time i would say this is a very good question because also like i just so many composers i would like to like explore more and mm -hmm. i would say maybe one of the composers i can ever think of right now is um perhaps bach because i would say mm -hmm. he's such a genius and all those different genres of music that we'll be listening to or we're working on uh, it's always they're always inspired from box music like box uh, like ten, um compositional techniques and the sound and just like for example just the um f um counterpuntal writings and like circles fifths and stuff and you can also listen to it through um pop music as well but i would say mm -hmm. if i were able to talk to him probably just in, well, instead of asking questions i would definitely like to show him playing his music with on, on the modern instrument just because I feel like his music is so powerful that sometimes I do believe that maybe the instruments back in that time period is somewhat limited to express more feelings from from him and I do believe that's so powerful that all those you know dissonance within to or all you know just like a um circle fills and any other kind of writings that's definitely can do more within modern instruments that we have so definitely yeah and also Paul just gonna ask him like why would you like to writing so much difficult music for us to learn you know but yeah, yeah. definitely that's funny you asked that because if i had to ask bach a question i'd say why did you use so many scales in your music why couldn't you think of something more creative but i'm so glad that that's just a really cool element of his music um hunter would ask like to ask a question about um you as a starting musician um so hunter take it away yeah so um my question is you know how do you think you know because obviously you started very young um based on what i what i had read about you and what sean was telling me um how do you think starting so young shaped you as a musician in comparison to if you maybe had started a little bit later um, I would say starting uh, to learn any musical instruments or maybe just music in general in, at a very young age definitely benefits a lot. But I do consider myself learning an instrument in a, at a very uh, late um, age just because I started to learn um, how to play piano around the age of nine. Because mm -hmm. in China, usually you learn uh, to play an instrument at a very young age. It's either like four or five years old. So I would just say that because I think at a very young age, you, you're able to learn things very quickly because you definitely can observe things that are surrounding by and then you can simply just grab right away. But I do believe that if you learn an instrument at a very um, 
around like age of nine or 10. Yes, maybe technical wise, you have to spend even more time to get through every single part of your fingers, just, just to know how cap capable of your fingers can be. So I, I remember when I started to learn how to play piano, it did take me a lot of time just to get through all kinds of technique that I need to be aware of because Eventually, when you start learning um, very uh, difficult pieces, you have to make sure that your technique needs to be solid. So I would say I did spend more time on that. But at the same time, I do believe that learning an instrument um, at the, around the age of nine definitely makes me feel more um, into it just by, uh, by, based on the fact that I can feel much more sensitive um, feelings toward how I feel and when I listen to the music and how mm -hmm. I feel when I actually just uh, play on the instrument. So definitely I would say, yes, I do get benefit from that, but definitely I would, I would probably be jealous if I can learn the instrument at a very young age. Mm -hmm. When did you move here from China? Um, I moved um, to USA um, around the age of um, 18. When okay. I just started my undergrad at Ithaca College. Oh, okay. So you so you had done most of your most of your piano training over in China and then your university work here. Uh, yes. Okay. I wasn't sure. Um, and having said that, then you know, obviously, did you have uh, you, you obviously had teachers over in China? Um, did you have anyone that you worked with that? And it could have been there, could have been here, musical or non musical. Did you have any role models that you particularly looked up to that either you know, spurred you to do better in piano or, or really just help you in your life? Any, any particular role model? Uh, yes, definitely. Um, I would say um, one of the role models that I definitely look up to the most is my, um, one of my former teachers back at Indiana University where I went um, on my master's degree. Mm -hmm. um, so his name is Roberto Plano and he's a um, very famous Italian virtuoso pianist. And he's that kind of teacher that always encourages students to do competition a lot because I think himself as a um, pianist that he literally won any um, like well-known um, international piano competitions possible. So I think um, something that he said definitely um, inspired me is that um, he said that, well, you know, sometimes I do believe that maybe you're not ready for playing competition, but I was still force you to do it just because you have to know what your limits limits mm -hmm. are and you have to make sure that you know that you believe yourself can actually conquer those uh, limits and you, you just need to play more and present more and get yourself um even more readier just to do any other um uh, constant engagements other than just competitions because eventually if you want to apply for a job or audition for grad schools, you have to build out that kind of mentality where you need to be ready just right at second. So um, definitely, I think he pushed me to do more of those, um, having those experiences, so which I really do appreciate it. So I think that's also kind of helped me to um, where I am now. Mm -hmm. Anyone when you were or like very young, when you said yourself, you know, like, you know, you think back to when you're a kid and you're like, oh, that person is, you know, anyone you thought of back then when you were looking to the future? Um, it's probably my dad because yeah. I think um, he also kind of, because he used to be a musician when he was in music school, but then he he gave up just because I think back in a time where 
um like China just trying to uh the, the classical um music market in China back in that time wasn't just uh, good so mm-hmm. he had to come up with something just to make sure that he can support himself financially and being very independent yeah but I think that inside he's still trying to um he still have the passion for music and he I, I think I believe that he just kind of passed down to me and is always trying to um just uh, make sure that I got so I, I am secure with everything that I don't have to worry about so I can focus on my study and focus on my music and he always he's always the one who sent me to uh different teachers to take lessons whether in um my local um uh, teachers or maybe just go travel to different cities in China just to like get d- different kinds of experiences like he always the one who would accompany me mm-hmm. so definitely <laughs> Oh, that's nice. It's it's nice that you have a you know you have a supportive parent who, uh, you know, encourage that sort of growth, which you know a lot of people, I feel like you know they 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 might go for it more if they had that kind of support. Um, so, so then my last question for you is uh, obviously you know this is something you've been working at a, a while now, and uh, what do you see yourself doing hopefully for the rest of your very long career? Um, do you see yourself continuing to perform as you get older, uh, teaching, conducting, where do you see yourself going? Um, I do see myself having a career as a performer that, that, you know, I can be able, I can be able to travel around the world and then just perform a lot. It's Mm -hmm. definitely my uh, long-term, like a, like a goal, but at the same time, um, because I started to teach in a university as a graduate um, assistant um, since my master's. So it, I do enjoy like just teaching um, students in a different um, level at different ages and which actually in a way, it's also part of my learning to be a mm-hmm. better musician and you always can reflect students, pro, uh, students um, like whether if they have a, a technical issue or musicality they need to just work on, they always reflect to something that I used to work on the same thing as well, but it just makes me realize that, oh, I can actually improve in terms of, you know, helping students um, to go through the same um, same problems together. So I think in the future, definitely, if I were able to teach somewhere, but as in like maintaining um, the kind of um, professional uh, career to perform a uh, worldwide would be nice. <laughs> yeah, that would be cool. I mean, I, I, I have, and I'm a teacher and, uh, you know, I think the same thing you do. I am um, in that by teaching others, you yourself continue to learn. You know, they they say that teachers are the lifelong students because you always wind up learning more and more from your students or or through what you're trying to teach them. So, they, I, I like that you you see that as you're as you're doing it in your in your masters in your uh, doctoral work. Definitely. Yeah. Um, Sean, anything else? I don't think so, um, but I think we're going to take a quick break, Junwin, um, and our break is going to be sponsored by our friends at Anchor, and if you'd like to support this podcast, please go to anchor.com and search Music Speaks Podcast to find ways to reach out to us, and you will find our social media and ways that you contribute to this podcast. When we come back, we're going to check out more of Junwin's music, so don't miss that, and we'll be right back. All right, and we are back with my friend and yours, Jun Wen. And Jun Wen, uh, the first song that you gave us is of Mozart's Piano Sonata Number no. Ten in C Major, which was composed in 1782. 
uh, the our three movements: Allegro Moderato, Andante Cantabile, and Allegretto. Um, and I, I I feel like I'm I'm assuming that you've played this before. Um, I I haven't really played this piece technically, but I used to learn the notes when I was at a very young age, because this piece is such a standard piece that everyone want, wants to learn and everyone knows. So yeah, definitely. I I think back in the time I was just like so into it, I was just trying to learn the notes, but. It's kind of sad that I didn't really get get to perform this piece because I just didn't really have time. Yeah. Right, and it's interesting that this piece is just kind of very classic Mozart, um, and very smooth. However, the one thing that kind of was striking to me was just right at the end where there it feels like there's a wrong note where there's an A flat that just kind of pops out right at the end of the piece um what what is your uh impression of that or your makeup of what he's trying to go for um yes i do believe that there's such a surprise where mozart just puts some kind of random notes but it's <laughs> yeah. technically not really just because i think maybe he's trying to break through that kind of um stereotype where you only need to hear five one five one or just that kind of typical um credential moment but I think when you actually have that kind of surprising notes, which it's actually part of a um, like diminished chord, where it's, you know, it's always part of like a dominant function. So in a way, sometimes Mozart would like to just substitute that kind of uh, with that kind of harmony instead of just having audience to figure out, uh, okay, so this is a typical Mozart. So let me just add something different so I can just spice it up and have people to get attention to listen to this piece, you know? Right. And I think something interesting that he does in this uh, second movement, which I think is stylistically beautiful, very slow, in F major, um, I feel like it's really interesting because, let me ask you a question, would you rather play beautifully in major or play beautifully in minor? Because I feel like that's kind of a, a good discussion to talk about because people sometimes enjoy playing in minor because it's more emotional and raw and then when people play major they feel like you're able to sort of play with expectations uh what is your experience with that and and uh what do you rather like to play in um i definitely enjoy playing either just play beautifully in either major or minors but i do believe that um just because you know in terms of sonority like you hear major keys can be a very happy, bright, and warm, any kinds of positive feelings. But I do believe there's certain perspective of feeling like sad, or maybe sometimes you can um, replace um, those kind of feelings into a major keys. That also, um, sometimes we can actually play major keys by expressing that kind of feelings just because um, sometimes composers don't want you to Composers don't want you to really expect what his music should be sounding like. So in, rather than just having like, okay, I'm setting a minor key because it's feeling, you know, sad or I'm feeling a little bit sorrow. So I'm just trying to make sure that I can write as expressive as possible. But sometimes, you know, just composer like Mozart, it doesn't have to, uh, he doesn't have to be like that obvious, like, um, you know, a very, um, always to figure out just like okay you know that sounds like typical mozart but i think his major uh, keys in a slow um tempo where you can sense a lot of 
um different feelings in in terms of like sentimental in a way for example so um i would say the second movement makes me feel like um kind of like homesick or just very sentimental that you just want to express all those good feelings good memories you have but sometimes it's not like you actually experience that kind of feelings but you just kind of miss it just because at the moment you feel like in, in a different kind of um like sentimental vibe right and i really enjoy this piece and i feel like the way you described it being a very a good starting piece for a young pianist i think is a really great way to describe this piece and i think it's also really beautiful that he um uh, he did a really great job with stylistically and writing a lot of really good material yes. for this piece so so thank you for sharing that with me i'm going to pass the baton over to hunter because hunter's going to take over with some chopin awesome sure so Chopin is your second piece, um, specifically the Mazurka in C-sharp uh, minor, which is his opus 30, number four, which is composed in 1837. And he wrote a lot of mazurkas. Yes. So, you know, what, <laughs> it was a, a favorite of his. Maybe it felt him, made him feel close to home to Poland. I don't know. But um, he, because he wrote so many why does this particular one stand out to you um so i actually just discovered this mazooka like two weeks ago and just kind of yeah. learning it and i do find it's very fascinating just because i i hear something different than some of his, um, his other mazookas and opus 3 is considered part of one of the early ones because he wrote so many and i also i worked on one of his um opus 59 the complete set of mazookas and you definitely can sense some something different within different time period that he wrote those pieces but opus 30 number four particularly i do like that kind of chromaticism that he put at the end and somehow it it makes me feel like oh it doesn't sound like chopin in a way just because the the sense of feeling the chromaticism in sequence it's very um Kind of different than what you can expect um, from Chopin's music, just because that kind of um, chromaticism shares some very uh, like expressive feelings of how you can feel uh, within just a two or three minutes piece, and then before that you have um, a session where you feel the mysterious moment that. Um, you just kind of play through and dance through it because mazooka is definitely like, not like uh, waltz where mazooka only emphasis on the second and third beat. Sometimes on the third beat just because you feel um, the pause is getting more exciting. Mm -hmm. But I think that the C-sharp minor one definitely makes me feel like you sense that kind of uh, the excitement at the very beginning. But the more you play through that, you just start feeling, oh, wow, this is something that I can even express more of myself with different kind of personal feelings. Mm -hmm. I do believe that I think, like, as I mentioned, I think this, this one particularly is very personal for me. And I can discover more even just within like clear um, form and under like three minutes. Mm -hmm. And you know what you what you said was interesting. So I want to just expand on that real quick. Is uh, you said that the end, the chromaticism at the end, it almost doesn't feel like Chopin. So to you, 
what the what does Chopin feel like? What's something that's characteristic of him? Um, I think Chopin's music always has that kind of feeling proud of himself as being a Polish composer,、mm-hmm. and also maybe back in the the history where um there's like almost there's always the war and just trying to fight for the justice、mm-hmm. where you need to. Write music to stand out of your nationality, yeah. And um, I think this, this for all the Chopin pieces I play, you definitely can sense that kind of vibe from him. But at the same time, because he traveled a lot, just because of back in the history where he cannot really go back to his homeland just because of the those um, um, um incidents. So you, uh, he just needs to write. Very expressive music and sentimental sense, like he makes himself very sensitive to、mm-hmm. uh, discover all different kinds of um sounds and technique, so you can feel um that kind of personal feelings of feeling like lonely or maybe just feeling like how much he love about his country and stuff. So I think this is definitely the um the style that at least we when we first start learning. Pieces from him that we definitely need to be able to capture. Yeah, and I guess this is sort of a a, a follow up question to that, which is I've known piano players who they've idolized Chopin and they think that he, you know he's he's God, and I've also known piano players who hate him. They will never play him. They they despise him. What do you think about his music, or or maybe even about him?、Um, Makes him so polarizing. Like, why? Why is he so both loved and hated? Um, I think because Chopin is such a one of the greatest um composers in the piano literature. Where uh, especially back in China, where you um you have to be able to learn at least a couple pieces from him, just because eventually you know it's a standard uh repertoire that you have to know, and then you you can also put it into competitions. And even like in,、uh, we have one of the greatest um international competitions in the world, which is the Chopin International Piano Competition in Warsaw.、Ah. So um something that you just always have to know in your hand. But to me, I I don't have mixed feelings with this composer just because I think looking back to all those um all those years I learned piano um I definitely play a lot of pieces by Chopin and. I used to feel like okay, so you know, just very hard and very virtuoso. Sometimes I get bored. Sometimes I just feel like why can't I just get through those part? And sometimes that all those difficult um um、uh, technical technical、uh, um perspectives cannot really get me through knowing how his music should sound.、Uh-huh. So um, I definitely was f- like feeling frustrated through it. But as as I'm getting as I'm getting older. I do believe that you can share your personal feelings with his music, just because sometimes even just little details, little um um rhythmic patterns, where you can sense that oh he put those notes in within those rhythms, definitely um comes with the reason that he needs to feel certain um feelings where you just have to be able to uh embrace it, and you have to be able to just like. Feel how you what you feel instead of just like learning notes and knowing remember how the harmonic progression should be. 
So I, I would say, yes, I, I think Chopin is definitely still my favorite composer. And I definitely can understand how why pianists don't like him just because, um, first of all, maybe just the complexity of the technique and the harmony. And then maybe just eventually when you learn most of the Chopin pieces, you kind of get tired just because sometimes people can consider his music would sound pretty much similar, even though mm-hmm. you have different, um, um, different character pieces or different uh, genres, you know, like sonatas, um, etudes, mazurkas, waltz, and polonets, more, uh, mostly just dance music. So people can maybe get somewhat tired of the kind of feeling appreciate, appreciated into just listening to his music and mm-hmm. rather just working on, on some somebody else's music, definitely. Yeah. I mean, I was like, you know, I was curious to get the opinion of a pianist, another pianist who uh, was who was obviously familiar with his work. Very cool. And speaking of pianists, we're going to jump about 50 years and Sean is going to talk about some Ravel. That's right. Uh, we're going to talk about some Ravel Mother Goose Suite, uh, composed around the time period of 1908 to 1910. Um, and there are four movements in this work. Um, sort of describing different, uh, I think, I believe sort of talks about different fairy tales and talks about uh, different kinds of things that are going on at that time. Um, yes. Uh, so a quick, a quick side note, Hunter loves this piece. He wanted me to, to say that right off the bat. He's really happy. <laughs> He's sad that nice. I did not give him this piece to talk about. Um, but this is such a unique piece. I actually have never heard it before, um, which is really interesting. You're kidding. I know. It's blasphemous. I know. Um, what what brought you to this piece, Junwen? Um, so I first uh, knew about this piece, is, I think, back in high school, where I um, watched videos that um, played by um, one of the greatest pianists in the world, Martha Algridge. Uh-huh. And one of the leading um, Chinese pianists, Lang Lang. So they both um, perform at the Vivian um, Festival in Switzerland. So I think that was the first time I got introduced with the, uh, this piece. And knowing that the, the sound can be, can be different within one piano, because this piano, this piece is um is written originally written was originally written for two uh, pian- one piano with two um, people, so piano four hands. And then I think he decided to orchestrate the entire piece to orchestra, uh, which was also sound very cool. And I think the fact that Rovell just knows so well about how his music can sound can be sounded within just the one sonor different sonorities within one instrument, and you just can't imagine how much he can he dedicate his like ideas, his talent into works like that, and then you can let audience in to have the imagination of based on what it sounds and based on the storyline. And then um, last year, well, actually my first year of doctoral studies at Penn State, I learned I learned to play this piece and perform with one of my um, colleagues, but I was supposed to play for one of my recitals, but b- because of COVID um, just started right at that time. So my recital got canceled, but I did, I was able to have one recording for that, which I was very happy with that. But yeah, definitely, I think being able to perform this piece definitely got me more into Rovell's music. So this is definitely one of my favorite pieces. Yeah. And it's really interesting that you mentioned between the, the, the two pianos and the orchestra, because one of my favorite movements in this is the second movement, 
mm-hmm. where and I'm curious. I don't think I got to, a chance to listen to the the two pianos, but I, I did listen to the orchestra version. Um, so and then there's a really great version in the there's a part in the orchestral version in the mm-hmm. second movement where you hear birds echoing mm-hmm. in the in the hall. I'm I'm wondering how how does that translate to the piano? Um. On a on a piano where you just need to play those great notes in a higher register where you can still kind of mimicking that kind of bird um sound. But um it's I think the um the piano version is that um the second um the, the second uh the second pianist will just play the all those chromatic scales, but then you'll hear that kind of clear melodic line somehow just got involved with the middle register. So Robert, I think this moment in the piano version is like you just be able to collaborate with pianists with other pianists within one piano where you just need to be able to play diff- within different um registers by just alternating um around with the pens and then uh you just need to mimicking the different sounds by having either a lower register or a higher register to capture different kinds of dynamic with paddles which is also very difficult because you need to have the other pianists to control a pedal where the first pianist will actually just play with different kind of controls on fingers, which is very challenging. So both pianists will be needs both pianists need to be able to listen to each other very carefully in order just to make sure that you actually can sound as a one person play on one piano. Right. Yeah. And, and something else that's really cool about the piece that I really liked was the uh, beauty and the beast movement mm-hmm. where you have this really elegant melody and then it turns into this really ugly sounding melody yeah. i thought that's just kind of funny um and i guess quickly you just want to get your take on it because it's not like the disney movie obviously um but what what do you think about it um i was I definitely was um got amazed when I just uh, when I first noticed there's a title and there's a storyline behind the the scenes, uh where um just it's about you know the beauty and beast and how these two characters get involved with the beautiful walls, but at the same time you feel like there's some kind of dramatic moment yeah. suddenly just kind of appears from nowhere and it's kind of a little bit spooky in a way, but at the same time, um you. You, you just need to make sure that in because for um, p- the piano version both pianists need to be able to um do the storytelling where um p- uh, both both of us just need to be able to make sure that okay so i'm going to play different kind of sound just to make sure that, okay so this is the the um like the the beautiful um uh, the girl just like wandering around and then maybe just dance with the, the beast just because you know maybe eventually they're falling out with each other but then you still feel that kind of like melodrama just like oh so how are we going to um depict that vividly just because you have to make sure that because this, you're not the only person who played this movement so you have to make sure both people can collaborate and be able to communicate well enough so yeah yeah this was such a surprising piece, and I'm so glad that you were able to share it with me. And now that I know about it, I'm definitely going to listen to it more. Um, and I think hopefully that's a good segue because then we're going to get to some more later work of Ravel, which is his piano concerto. So, Hunter, take it away. Yeah, so we have the the piano concerto in G major, which is uh, composed between 29 and 31. And, you know, it's broken up into three movements, Allegramente, Adagio Assai, and Presto. And 
you know, the first thing that struck me is like, you know, the beginning has these really odd techniques that they use, you know, like uh, character techniques um, makes it seem very off kilter at the beginning. Why do you think he would choose to start that way? Um, I think it's kind of like a surprise just because, um, because I think Rovell is such a, also very, such a genius that he can know how to orchestra, um, putting uh, orchestra so well with different okay. kinds of um inst instruments to create different sound effect i think in the beginning just trying to, um it was i think the, the orchestra was um the leading part where a piano uh, the pianist just need to just accompany through it with different kinds of harmonies between major and minors in a chromatic way so um i think um it's, it's definitely a good uh, start to get the uh, audience attention we just see how um, he wants the um, pianist and orchestra to collaborate with one another. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I agree. And you know, I even and in my notes here, I had um, he's really good at going from not a lot of sound to in you know, he inserts these like orchestral swells that that come in and then they die out again and then they come back in and they die out again and. Uh, I, I think if this beginning part in particular, this first movement really shows that. Cause you know, after the initial section, there's a really cool slower minor, you know, minor key part with the piano, which is neat. But one of the biggest things I think Ravel does well is he's incorporating a lot of, you know, quote unquote jazz harmonies, very, very 20th century sounds into his music. Yes, definitely. And, um, because I'm actually learning this concerto as well, mm -hmm. so I de I've definitely just like listened to um, um, be able to um, observe there's so many like jazz elements into it. Yeah. And um, I did my little bit of research about this concerto, and it turns out that because I think um, both Gershwin and Rovell they actually know each other, and they both actually around the same time as well. Mm -hmm. So I think um, because I Gershwin did um his kind of um, further studies in Paris and um, they both got along with um, one another just because I think Gershwin was trying to get some lessons with Rovell for oh, a really? session. But um, Rovell actually kind of refused to it just because I think there's so many story uh, behind the scenes. But um, but I um, for his, for Rovell's uh, piano concerto, there's a um, piano, um, there's a, um, there's one part where um, if I remember correctly that um, he did kind of quote um, Gershwin's um, Rhapsody in Blue, mm -hmm. and you can hear that kind of very um, syncopated uh, rhythms, and then you also have that kind of cool effect that going on between um, orchestra and piano, where you hear some kind of like um, like someone has gives you the kind of illusions that whether you actually is this Ravel or is this Gershwin, yeah. Right? And it's something that you just kind of need to know how you can blend in that kind of um, jazz element into that kind of French uh, music, for sure. Mm -hmm. Definitely. I did see a lot of similarities between, or you can definitely see the parallels between the two works, because one, uh, one of our later ones we'll talk about is a Gershwin concerto piece. Um, so with the rest of this song, you know, my, my notes that I had were just that, you know, his slow sections are always so gentle, Ravel. It's, he, he's really good at writing very lightly. And uh, it, his 
the adagio is like it's very lyrical without being melodic. I don't know if you found the same way. I I, I don't know. Like it's hard to describe. Um, were you talking talking about the second movement? Um, yeah, the second movement. Yeah, I definitely feel the same way, and I do find the challenges like maybe for me, it's very hard to um memorize it well just because it's such a simple uh beginning where you have that kind of um one line of. The for melody, but then in the left hand, you have so many different uh, interesting harmonies underneath yeah. the melody. So that kind of adds to um, the kind of simplicity that Rovell has, just because um, you, you don't want to you don't you don't want to expect that like um, that kind of simplicity can be seen other than just for you know for early uh, classical period like Haydn, Mozart, they can certainly write them. Um, pieces like that very easily and quickly but mm -hmm. i think for rovell it's definitely like because he also contributed himself into the early um composers in the um, baroque period so he's trying to kind of um maybe it's not parallel but i would say maybe he's trying to pay the kind of com uh, contribution to those um, composers back in the early period where you just need to maintain that kind of simplicity but with the elegance mm -hmm. but adding his own uh, harmonic language which is very fascinating. Yes, very much so. I, I, I completely agree with you. And then getting to the third movement, how I was getting Ajita just like watching the performer play this piece. How hard is the presto section? Um, <laughs> it's a good question. Um, so I think I would say the third movement's very virtuosic because it's more like staccato and where pianists just freely just show of them for themselves. Um, I would say it's definitely difficult, but not quite difficult as the first movement just because really? for, for the first movement you have to be able to get um involved with knowing what the orchestral part is and mm -hmm. then you have to be able to blend in with the kind of orchestral sound because you know make sure it's uh, in the entirety is not just about piano it's actually right. piano and orchestra but i think the third movements kind of take away for piano just because you can um just focus more your, on your self just because you have the kind of Takata like virtuosic passages, even though um I think the third movement definitely has so uh certain parts where for um for orchestra where uh there's I remember there's some one session where the bassoonist needs to be able to play fast and very clear uh clear sound, so then piano can take away with the same motive, uh which is also kind of um challenging, but still I do feel like um it's just a free time for um free moment for pianists where you just kind of express yourself more. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I, I was curious, I, you know, being a very limited pianist, I, I wouldn't know to think of that, but it makes sense that the, the balance of the first movement would make it more difficult. Um, so sticking in the same time period with a, with a colleague of Ravel's, I know Sean would like to ask you about some Debussy. That's right. And I'm not sure if they ever got along, Debussy and Ravel. No, I don't think they um, did. I don't think they did. Um, but this is a really cool piece, uh, Junwen, which is uh, Debussy's La Plus Culente. The uh, translation of this piece is more than slow, which <laughs> yes. I think is really interesting to name a piece more than slow. Uh, what is your takeaway from this piece being called more than slow? Um... 
I do believe it's kind of weird um title at uh, just trying to let the pianist to uh, know like oh so this is a waltz but it's more than just being slow but um it's definitely a flowing tempo for pianists just to play through the piece but more than slow to me is um the feeling that you don't want to lock yourself into a very slow tempo to play everything squarely even though it's waltz you know it's a triple meter but for Debussy he's because um this waltz is in a um he's trying to explore different sounds because I think back in the time period where you have you know Ravel and folks uh, also Scrabin who's a very famous Russian composer mm -hmm. to like he's I think this um this for this world particularly where Debussy is still trying to explore different new harmonies so I think if you want um if you have if you want a student just to play everything squarely strictly with the mindset of like okay so just play wild styles like one two three one two three but you won't be able to actually capture the harmonic languages from um w's in music so i think modern slow is definitely the fact that where you can allow yourself to create more space or just do kind of back and forth in terms of making the music flow within uh, uh within different kinds of harmonies or some intro um um interesting passages where you can actually play very beautiful melodic line that just makes that kind of beyond what you can think of as a waltz style. So I do believe this actually what he meant, but because more than, if you just think about the literal meaning like more than slow, so. You, how to decide whether you have to play very very slow tempo to play waltz but it's also very hard to think about how you can dance within a very slow tempo waltz i think to me even though you can have slow waltz but still you just need to be able to dance around for it because you need to make sure the pause is still like sound like waltz not just about like okay so it's like slower <laughs> right um, I also think it's really interesting that he was almost the creative backing behind a lot of new theory and a lot of new information about music theory and how we can think about using all this technique. And um, I feel like in this piece it really shows his range of beautiful and intricate harmony. Um, yes. And I want to ask you before we take a quick break, um, if you were working on this piece with a younger pianist, um, what would you say to really pay attention to in this piece? Um, I would definitely uh, would ask a student to be able to um, figure out the correct notes of those harmonies, just because if you literally just miss one or two notes within those harmonies that he wrote, you definitely can, you definitely won't be able to um, know what, harmony is about when you actually add the melodic line and actually i actually um working this piece with one student of mine and i noticed that because i think students at a very young age was uh are not able to know right away about how those impressionist music can sound like mm -hmm. so i think the first right. thing i always tell my students like okay maybe just start looking at the left hand first because for pieces like the that um that like this waltz you get all the different kinds of harmonic sounds within the left hand or maybe just both hands when play the blocked chords together so i would definitely ask students just like okay you know play through all those harmonies and tell me what you think 
and also I would definitely I would definitely ask students to uh, go through each note correctly just because you have to make sure that you'll be able to play them correctly so that harmony can make sense. So I think this is that's definitely the start to let peer, um, let students know, okay, so this is going to be aware of when you actually learn a piece of music from impressions, period. Right. Yeah, this piece is beautiful, gorgeous, intense, and uh, I love really it so much. <laughs> yeah, awesome. Uh, June, we're going to take a, another quick break, uh, sponsored again by our friends at Anchor. And if you'd like to follow us on social media, we are on Twitter, Instagram, Facebook, TikTok, and YouTube. On Twitter, we are at Music Speaks underscore pod. Instagram, we are Music Speaks underscore podcast. On Facebook, we are Music Speaks podcast. On TikTok, we are at Music Speaks underscore podcast. And on YouTube, your music speaks podcast um we have five more songs to get through and we're going to keep talking to june Wen about them and we'll be right back all right and we are back with part two of june Wen's selections and the first one we have right after the break here is prokofiev's music for children and um you know prokofiev he uh He's done a lot of pedagogical uh, works, right? Meant to instruct younger children um, on, on music. This and um, obviously the one being Peter and the Wolf. And uh, with this one, you know, it's split up into so many movements, which for those who don't know, the music for children is split into morning, promenade, a little story, tarantella, regret, waltz, march of the grasshoppers, the rain and rainbow, playing tag, March evening, and the moon strolls in the meadow. So, it's a lot of music. So my question for you, Junwen, is for each of the movements, what's, what's one way do you think that Prokofiev is able to characterize that movement, like the, the setting that he was thinking? You know, the first one is mourning. How does he characterize mourning? Do you think there's any particular technique that stands out? Um, I would say Prokofiev um did a lot of um kind of weird thing into his um composition just because um it remind literally all these um little pieces reminds me remind me of um other his gigantic works, and sometimes um I feel like the way he approaches with different storylines and tellings is always because uh based on how he um line up with the register mm -hmm. so i think at the beginning when you, when you hear the beginning of the morning uh when you hear the little um that um it starts with lower register on the c major but then it also goes up to the higher register where i feel like it's kind of like a sunrise moment where mm -hmm. you start seeing um the, feeling the nature and then you also start having some um other um motive where you have the in um where you uh, see those notes in the middle register i think that's where you feel like you'll feel like okay the morning routine start um to happen and um i would say opus um 65 is one of his um best pieces that shows pokovia's happiness because um the history um the background story about this work is that um he was spending his summer time with his um children Oh. And he actually he was just enjoying the moment where uh, when he just watched watched his children play around in the um, backyard. Let's play 
<clears throat> football, and then he would just like join them, just play together, and then he just decided to roll um a little pieces for them as well. And it's actually the first um the only piano pieces for intermediate level that he wrote. Really? Yes. So all of his stuff is for more advanced. Uh yes, because he wrote so many um virtuosic pieces like piano sonatas and piano concertos. Which actually, um, I performed the Prokofiev the third piano concerto back in Ithaca College. So, and mm -hmm. it, when I start learning that piece, I was like, "Wow, oh man, this is <laughs> terribly difficult." <laughs> but it was definitely fun because I can definitely see the, all those iconic moments from him. Mm -hmm. And have you played the um, his music for children? Uh yes, I actually uh, did a presentation uh, last fall uh, for my pedagogy um, seminar. So um, that's how I know about the background story, and then just a little bit analytical um, um, for each um, pieces. Mm -hmm. And do you have a particular favorite movement? Since I mean, there's twelve, there's twelve sections. So, do you have one that you like more than others? Uh, yes, I like the um, number eleven. It's called uh, "Evening" mm -hmm. because I would say this is probably the most quietest <laughs> moment that you can actually listen to from Prokofiev. Yeah. And it's very storytelling, and it's more like um very dreamy, and it reminds me of like um pieces by Schumann in a way that because you hear oh, yeah. very diatonic um um moments from from Prokofiev, which is kind of rare, just because you always hear lots of dissonance and a lot yeah. of kind of octave displacement where you also see, even with simple simple melody, that you can hear the notes diff in a different register, which is kind of strange. But this one particularly, you only hear, just hear simple melody and simple accompaniment, which is very special to me. Mm -hmm. And do you know, I mean, I, I probably could have looked this up, but do you know, have they orchestrated his, his music for little children or is it always a piano piece? Oh uh, yeah, actually he arranged um, to, to, for orchestra, but mm -hmm. with selected uh, movements, um, wow. which if I remember correctly, and it's probably just morning, um, the promenade and waltz and evening and the, the, um, the moon shows in the middle because um, I think this is probably also a proper way to orchestra for um, for the instruments because of the register. And he actually did reverse order. So oh, really? it's kind of like mixed up with the order uh, in comparison with um, the piano version, which is very interesting. Yeah. But I think there's yeah. no particular reason that he did that, but it just kind of felt like doing this. So it's kind of put on into a work. Mm -hmm. Interesting. You know, you never know what's going through the composer's mind while they're while they're working, and then when they go back and they look at their work and they want to make changes, oh, excuse me, oh, why are you yawning? I, I don't sleep well. Um, too many things racing around in my brain. Um, it's funny when, the, when uh, the composers go back and look at their own work, um, you never know if they're happy with it or they want to make changes or if they're going to do something like orchestrate do they decide then, right, I should reverse the order or it works better reversed based on how it sounds with a, with a full orchestra. Yeah. So you, you never know. All right. And with that, we will uh, move on. Oh, I didn't even see that this was number seven, but uh, Sean would like to stick with the Russian and uh, go to Kapustin. 
That's right. And uh, this next piece is called the Kampustin Variations, Opus 41, and composed in the year 1984. Uh, Jun Wen, he passed away in 2020. Yeah, that's very unfortunate to know because he's such a um, one of the greatest composer, composers in the living period. But for some reason, like, it's just we're always always shocking. I think I feel like the past years just always see all those most famous musicians, composers, like knowing the fact that like that they pass away in especially last year during the COVID period. It's very saddening, but at the same time, just yeah. Yeah, he. It's so strange. I was going to tell you, um, I sort of bumped into his music accidentally. Oh, really? You know, never really happened. And then I got to listen to his 24 preludes. Nice. Um, and um, one of my favorite movements is the second one, the second one in A minor, where he it's it's sort of bumpy and it's playful. And then right at the end, he just kind of, it, it just twinkles out of nowhere. And it's so beautiful. Um, his writing is so good. Um, Hunter, I'm not sure if you got a chance to listen to this one. This one, crazy, crazy good. Yeah, not this one I haven't listened to, but I, I the set of pieces that you were talking about, the 24, <laughs> I know that one, and they are very good. Very good. Yeah, I really enjoyed this one all over. And I wanted to mention to you, um, Jun Wen, mm -hmm. the one word that I have about this piece is damn. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> damn is a good. It's so much fun. Have you gotten to play it before? Um, no, I haven't yet, but it's definitely one of my um, repertoire lists I'm going to learn probably like next year. Cool, cool. Yeah, I, I, I'm too bad I can't play piano because this is what I would want to play. Um, you know, I want to backtrack because to the untrained eye, it looks pretty insane and crazy. Uh, and maybe to the trained eye, it also looks tra uh, crazy and outrageous. Um, help me break this down. How do you start practicing, practicing something like this? Because I couldn't even imagine doing something like this. Yeah, I, I honest, I absolutely agree with you. Like it's, you know, you know with the train, I you definitely feel like, wow, how can a composer write down music like this? You know, you ha with such a complicity, but also with such so many fancy uh, chords that's happening in order just to have the fusion of the jazz music. Mm. Um, I remember when I start, when I tried to um, actually just look through this piece and I couldn't really get through like the first couple of bars just because you have to f feel the rhythm, particularly, even though the beginning you have uh, both hands played in unison, but still you need to feel how you can sense the kind of um, jazzy um, rhythms then also mm. At the same time, knowing that you have to make sure everything needs to be exactly on in time and very accurate. So this is very hard because I think Kapustin um, is such a composer where he did ask um, pianists to f uh, follow strictly with all the rhythms that he wrote. And it's, it's sort of like, feel like jazz music, which I believe that you always need to allow yourself to f get the flow and just play along with the with the other fellow musicians. But for his music, even though it's under the kind of a jazz fusion, but still you need to understand the form, which is actually very traditional, but also mm -hmm. you need to make sure you have to read the notes very correctly. 
just mm. because if you miss one or two notes, like if you mi misread one or two notes, it would simply ruin the whole um, vibe from that piece. So I think when I start learning this, I just have to like put a metronome and maybe start very slow tempo, just trying to get through every single rhythm that he wrote, even with a very small note or rest. Mm -hmm. You have to be like careful. Right. Well, good luck. Um, no, I'm kidding. <laughs> sure it'll be great. Um, I I do I, know this piece. I oh, you do? I was just looking at the at the score. I do know this piece. This is great. This might be one of my favorite of his. <laughs> I was late yeah. to the party, but I didn't know it by name. Sorry, no, I had to interject that. No, it's okay. It's all right. Um, I wanted to mention to you, Junwen, that I feel like every single element of music is in this six-minute piece. Mm -hmm. Slow, fast, lyrical, um, agitated. Um, every idiom of jazz is in this, collective progressions. Um, I think we can definitely make a list of things he's, he, he does right in this piece. What do you think he does absolutely right for piano in this piece? I think he definitely captured the very um, um, the, the kind of jazzy moment where you can just instantly feel the excitement, and also um, I remember I I heard a couple of passages where it, it reminds me of um, the, um, I wonder if I pronounce correctly um, Artadem, um, he's um, his arrangement of um, the T424 piano where you have a very fancy right hand, that kind of arpeggiated moment that's just happening very fast, which actually shows on um, the couple of things variation. So I think um, he de definitely knows how you can get the kind of virtuosic perspective for pianists where, because he's also um, he's a Russian pianist and also very classical trained. And in fact, if you actually pay close attention to listen to this piece, you'll notice he actually paid a tribute, a, a tribute this piece to um, Stravinsky because if you notice at the beginning, and it's actually from the um, the piece, um, I think it's from Rite of Spring. So you 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 hear da di da di da di da. da. And then you'll notice that at the beginning, it's actually just the same thing, but he changed the rhythm. So I think also it's kind of reminds, it's a reminder for pianists that, like, okay, even though it's a variation and it's a very jazzy piece, you need to feel different kinds of characters, but still you need to be able to sense where it comes from and follow the rules of that kind of traditional form and play around with it. Yeah. Thank you for talking about this piece because I, I thought it was absolutely brilliant because the writing, incredible, really nice and smooth. Um, although in this next one, we get some more jazz, but we're going to go back maybe 50 years previous <laughs> to the previous composer of Gershwin. Hunter, take it away. Yeah, so in uh, we have the concert in F major from 1925 by George Gershwin who, like, like Sean said, you know, he, he was Mr. Jazz at the time. Um, but, you know, one thing about his, his music, which I'm sure you would agree, June Wen, is that a lot of, of, of scholars and academics have a very difficult time placing his, his or categorizing his music because they're like, well, it's classical. And then people in the jazz community are like, well, no, it's jazz. And they're like, yes. yeah, there's jazz elements. And then 
it goes back and forth. They're like, where does he really fit in? Because it, it was such a revolutionary way of writing um, basically everything that he did. Because he did have a Tin Pan Alley background where he was, mm -hmm. he was writing for this early Broadway, yes. which is you really hear in his piece. And for those who don't know, this, this concerto is split into mm -hmm. three movements. We have Allegro, Adagio, and Allegro Agitato. Um, and I'm just curious for each of the movements, what your thoughts are. Cause like the opening struck me, it's very grand and yet understated at the same time. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I, I would say, um, cause I think for, for most of the people who know about Gershwin in the piano literature is about his Rhapsody in blue mm -hmm. and probably just the three preludes, which is very, very famous and very gorgeous pieces. And I do believe that um, when I first know about Gershwin, like he, his music is, very, is a jazz to me, mm -hmm. but it's more I'm, as I'm getting older, that more I know about this composer, I do feel like, you know, he actually wrote a lot of pieces in a very traditional form. And even mm -hmm. though he had so many uh, songs that he wrote for, you know, for Broadway, and he actually had a complete songbook yeah. for sure. And, and for, um, still, like you sense the kind of traditional um, um, form and a kind of um, classical form, particularly on um, each one of the movements in this piano concerto as well. And it's actually uh, considered uh, his first piano concerto, aside from the Rhapsody in Blue. Really? And I think maybe the reason that his, uh, the, this piece is kind of underrated is because I think no one really consider it's a very typical Gershwin just because you have all three traditional movements and now you were in the 20th century, um, early, uh, like late 19th, 20th century where you have also so many um, different kinds of music, different kinds of yeah. genres happening around the same time. So I think he's, I, I, I agree with you, like it's, a lot of scholars really are having a hard time to find out what, which, genre that he belongs to but to me i i do believe that he's belongs to the he's in the he's in such an advocate of the fusion of having jazz and classical mm -hmm. with, within his music which is very special to me and if you also just listen to all three movements together you you hear um you'll notice they have um similar formatic materials coming through the entire three movements yeah. and i do believe that a lot of classical composers and you know even with romantic composers they also do the same thing which i feel like goshwin's also feel himself belongs to that kind of category and yeah. he also has such um uh well found a uh, background that he studied in paris and as i mentioned that he you know he met um Ravel and just trying to get some lessons with him even though he got rejected but still um he <laughs> He studied with, I think he studied with Nadia Brown, Brown J, J, which, um, okay, you know, yeah. you, which you also bump into a bunch of famous American composers to study with her around the same time, such as Aaron Copeland. So he's also trying to learn different kinds of um, contemporary technique just to get involved with his music. But I think back in the time, if I under, if I understand American history correctly, but I think that back in the time, just like you also just started to have all kinds of, you know, early Broadway and jazz and that kind of um, type of music is very um, prominent 
Yeah. So I think he's just trying, also trying to get himself out of that with the name and just trying to add everything together. Yeah, definitely. He was he was really, uh, you know, he traveled a lot and he he tried to pull things from everywhere that he went. And like you said, in the twenties, there were so many different styles of music that you know Paris was a massive center for music at the time. It was they were big into jazz over there. Um, but also it was a massive classical center, particularly for the, the modern era. And there were a lot of really well-known people that he probably crossed paths with while he was over there, um, yes. including Nadia as, as a piano player. Um, and uh, I mean, I'm, she, I'll, she was also a composer, but um, I just love for these three movements, how they're all very different, but like you said, they do keep some similar themes and you can hear that it, I mean, it's, it, it, you could tell it's all the same piece, but, and I know Sean probably liked this about this piece, that second movement has a great trumpet part. Mm -hmm. And it really gives you the vibe of like New York City. Mm -hmm. Like I really feel like you could tell he was from New York when you hear that mm -hmm. because it has that sound. Did, I don't know if anything else really stuck out to you during these movements. Have you gotten to play this? Uh, no, I haven't yet, but I would definitely love to learn that piece as well. And actually, no. um, if um, uh, I, as I mentioned, I uh, guess uh, about the Rovell um, piano concerto, because I do believe that there's somewhat there's a certain perspective of similarities in between yeah. these two um, pieces. And also, if you remember, like the, the first movement of Rovell um, piano concerto, the trumpet um, sessions are also very prominent as well. Yes. So I think there's a kind of correlation where you see that trumpet is such a prominent instrument especially in the um in this with the style and also with the kind of um, with jazz we you have to stand out with yourself as you're kind of playing it like a you know jazz band where you just just play along collaborate collaborate with one another mm -hmm. which i do believe that with such piano concerto like this with a uh, traditional form but it's also adding something different trying to get attention so yeah. I think it's definitely like uh, it's a definitely in a new perspective back in a time where you add instruments, different instruments to play along with the piano and trying to make it you know, even more um, prominent. Mm -hmm. And now now here's a question, keeping that in mind. And there's there's no right or wrong answer to this, I guess. But, you know, by this time. Or, or not by this time, but clearly, you know, this it's concerto in F, right? So it, it's, a, it's a piece of music that I assume was intended to be absolute music. But after the Romantic era, there was so much program music going around that even people who were writing absolute music, you could tell they probably had a, an idea or a scene in mind while they were writing it. So even though they didn't intend for it to paint a picture, it, it sometimes did that. So as a performer, do you think of this as a piece of absolute music or do you have a scene or a, a, a feeling or a picture in mind while you're playing it or does it evoke something for you? Or at least while you're listening to it because you didn't play it. Um, I would say this piano concerto definitely is under the uh, absolute music. Uh, absolute um, music category just because you have all the f movements lined up with uh, the particular um, tempo and then you have a tradition, mm -hmm. 
um, strictly forms within the first and second and third movements. And but I do believe that um, because his music is such a it is an infusion with jazz and also the kind of from his songbook that you just hear different kinds of American style music. Uh-huh. So, and also kind of reminds me of one of his other works, um, an American Paris. Yeah. So I think it definitely, even though there's no um any kind of title or story behind this piano concerto, but still, once as soon as you listen to the entire piece, you feel the same. There's such an iconic um vibe from um con- uh from Gershwin. It's definitely like okay, so I assume that it's probably like a storytelling as you as if you listen to other pieces like Amer- in American Paris or Rhapsody in Blue. Mm-hmm. So I think um, definitely when a performers need to uh, convince the audience, definitely you need to have the kind of mission to give the audience an, a storytelling through what they listen to. But at the same time, you have to know how this piece is being structured so then you'll be able to actually create even more storyline to the audience which you can put i would say you can you would definitely believe that the, in based on the form it's an absolute music but as a performer you need to convince the audience with that kind of program music mindset to have the audience to convince that it's actually a storytelling within this piano concerto Mm-hmm. So. Oh, that was a very good answer. <laughs> and that was exactly what I was looking for. Um, because that's something that always interests me. You know, what I, I often find it difficult because, you know, we live in this century. I find it difficult to think that people sometimes write solely, absolutely. Like, there's got to be something in your mind while you're composing that is guiding you in that direction. Mm-hmm. Um, which you know you you explain perfectly um my it is not about this piece but it is about gershwin uh we talked about this in another episode um but are you familiar with his uh cuban overture um i heard of the name but i believe that i have not heard um listened to that piece yet no you definitely should um yeah. it is a very cool piece you know he he went to cuba and he uh really took in the music there. He really thought about it, combined it with a lot of his style. And uh, it's a, a very cool piece. So if you haven't heard it, I would, I would definitely recommend it. Yeah, definitely. Thank you for recommending. You're welcome. Uh, and now we're going to jump about 90 years in the future. Or, uh, yeah, 90s. And yeah. Sean wants to ask you about some Christina Aguilera. That's right. Masters of Segways, ladies and gentlemen, Hunter Sedona. Uh, the next song we're going to talk about is some Christina Aguilera. The song is The Voice Within. The album is stripped. The release is 2002. And again, the song is The Voice Within. Man, what a de- uh, departure from Gershwin. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I'm kidding. No, I um, think about but it, yeah. but uh, interesting, though, they were both superstars in, in, their, in their own way. Mm-hmm. Um, I think hopefully this will make a nice connection to both of them. Uh, how how were you introduced to Christina Aguilera? So I, when I was at a very young age, um, I listened to a lot of pop songs, like pop American songs, and Christina Aguilera is one of them. And um, it's also a way for me to learn English. 
oh. so at the same time, just trying to figure out what she was talking about, and then also just like because her voice is so powerful, and mm -hmm. also with songs like this, it's definitely mm -hmm. I definitely feel a lot of emotions and and feelings, and just something that definitely can I feel inspired as well. So mm -hmm. I think that's how I got um introduced about um her, and I just started started listening to uh listening to quite many of her, her songs. Right. One of my favorite lyrics in the song is when there's no one else, look inside yourself. Mm -hmm. Which sounds pretty pretty profound. What do you what do you make of that? Um so I personally uh, think about is that um because sometimes I think, you know, as a musician, you don't really um you don't really get like the way you perform the way you play, the way you perform is not like, not everyone can be, can be satisfied with your playing. So sometimes you hear um, different kinds of like judgments and some some kind of feedbacks that you feel like you might be feel defeated or you might be feel somewhat uh, negative about it. But I think at the same time, when you're just trying to um, have your own time just to look through all those you know, all your performance, all, all people say to you, and just look yourself, look inwardly. So then maybe just listen to, just trying to ask yourself, what do you actually feel about that, about your performance, and how much do you need to take on people's um, like negative feedbacks or something that kind of, um, the, some of the judgments from towards your performance. So I think when I listen to this song, it definitely rem um, makes me think of that. And sometimes I think it's really important to listen to what you think of yourself and then listen to what you think of how much you do care about um, your own feelings and stuff, like being way too um, caring about somebody else's feeling right. or um, mm -hmm. comments, you know? Yeah. I feel like when I thought of that initially, I thought of the the One Direction song that we talked about that one time, Hunter, that um, if you if you're alone, don't. Oh yeah, but that's I'm right. I'm glad that I'm glad that that Junwen you said it the right way, and and that inwardly thinking is really cool. Um, and I think this song is really very expressive. And one of my f favorite parts of the song is when it just it crosses over from soloistic to like true rock. Mm -hmm. um, how does that make you feel? I think that's where you feel the kind of emotional burst because just, uh, I think because of the lyrics and the character, like you just have to, sometimes just, you just need to feel that I need to express myself more and actually focus on myself and just trying to tell myself like, it's okay that whatever people say, but you still need to know what you do can make yourself to, what, what, can you, what you can do to make yourself feel better and get improved. Yeah. I think that's definitely where I feel the connection with the kind of emotional um, um, bursts. So I think definitely uh, sometimes it's, you know, as a classical musician, we probably get tired of listening to classical music all the time. So I think having um, somebody like like her, uh, like that you can actually feel inspired to, I mm -hmm. think it's definitely like worth it and just listening to it and then just feel what you feel. And sometimes you might not be able to feel a lot that kind of emotional uh, contest through playing classical music just because we always need to focus on how 
we can be how we can be solid and without making mistakes. And then maybe that's the time where we kind of miss the uh neglect the um the the true feelings of how we feel about those pieces emotionally. But sometimes mm -hmm. I think listening to pop music can definitely have the kind of easier approach to feel that way. And sometimes you can also just having that kind of mindset to pull into your the piece you're working on, but maybe not completely, but just having that kind of um as a third person just to think of how you can attribute that kind of emotion toward pieces you're playing and how those notes and harmony that you can actually build up to that kind of emotion too. Right. I feel the same way about Katy Perry. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I can kind of Absolutely. escape from that, yeah. Um, Hunter has the last song, and Hunter, you have some Adele. So Indeed. Take it away. All right, so we've got Adele's Make You Feel My Love. So it was on her album 19, released in 2008. And, you know, the first thing that struck me, it's a very nice tonic ending chord progression. It's not particularly original, but... It's very pleasant, you know what I mean? It's like you hear it and you're like, oh, that's so, that's nice, you know. Um, and I just I took a screenshot of the, the sheet music here. So we go from uh, B flat chord to an F with an A, to an A flat, E flat, E flat minor, B flat, C7, E flat with an F, and then B flat. Um, and, you know, it's just you, you hear it and it's, it's comfortable, you know what I mean? And that, I think, really contributes to the song um, because you're, you feel sort of relaxed listening to it. So yeah. my, my first question is the whole beginning of the song is entirely piano and then there's a cello and violin entrance. Um, and why do you think she chose from, from an orchestrator standpoint, why do you think the writers wanted the cello and the violin to be the only other instruments in the song? Um, I mean, of course, I, I don't, I do not know her intent, but I feel like <laughs> as soon as I uh, listening to at the very beginning, um, I do feel that sometimes I think those instruments, uh, it's more like a piano trio, that kind of setting. Uh -huh. But still, I think that's where you can feel the closest um, emotional connection to uh -huh. uh, for people to listen to, especially, you know, when you start to, have the kind of have the piano at the very beginning, but then you started having cello and violin just coming along. And it's kind of like a storytelling, just trying to get you involved with the story and the emotion you're going to feel when you listen to this music. And um, I think it's also kind of fitting uh, her voice very well yeah. because Adele's voice is so beautiful and powerful. And especially when she sings, in a kind of low register and middle register. And I think that's where you can actually, uh, she can blend in with those instruments then actually make it like an ensemble. Like it's like collaboration, basically. It's yeah. not just about like, oh, I'm the singer, but the rest of the instrument just simply accompany me. But I think they just kind of work together into a, as I said, like storytelling, which I find is very beautiful for that song. Yes, it is. And you, you're right. I think, uh, particularly the cello, I think her voice melds very well with, um, in exactly the ranges you said, in the, in the lower to middle range. Yes. I, I think it works very well. Now, my other question is, this song was actually written by Bob Dylan. Um, and 
Are you a fan of his, or did you know this song through her rendition? Well, um, this might be a little embarrassing because um, I know I heard about Bob Dylan, but mm -hmm. I did not know that song is actually um, come from him originally. Mm -hmm. But um, I think probably I, I just I, I also didn't really get a chance to listen to the original song, uh, version. Mm -hmm. But I think maybe just like different um, different singer has different interpretation with one song. I think maybe um, the fact that we also need to think about how they orchestrated and. Um, the entire um the song and to, to, maybe you can feel different perspective of feelings emotions mm -hmm. so i think um but i would definitely need to go back to listen to it it just so maybe i can just um because i guess just for my curiosity you know yeah i mean he you know he has his own he has his own very distinct style i'm not a particular fan of his um i have nothing against him but uh you know, I, I think I would probably, I probably prefer Adele's version better. That's just me. But obviously he is, he is much beloved by many people. So clearly, you know, he's got something working for him. Uh, and having said that, Adele herself is a very unique performer. And what's something that you think she does very well when she performs? I think, um, Unlike uh, Christina Aguilera, I think Adele is such a, a wonderful performer who you actually can treat. This is more like a conversation. Like she just sing it, this um the lyrics and sing the story to you, and just trying to have a conversation to build a connection with the audience. And but of course, I did did not mean to say that Christina Aguilera uh, doesn't do that. But still, I think um the fact that they um just trying to communicate with audience with mm -hmm. what they want to tell. And I think that's what uh, the, the, uh, does really well by the fact that just because her voice range and also how she uh, put her emotion within um, the, the, the notes, the, the melody that she sings, it's always feel, you, you don't feel bothered or you don't feel like, oh, she's just trying to show her, her, um, her capability of the, her right. voice, but she's just trying to tell you something and trying to communicate, which I do value that very much. And I also just really enjoy listening to her um, songs as well. Yeah. I mean, you know, some, some performers are much more, um, what's the word I'm looking for? They're, you know, they're much more outward. It's a lot more flashy, uh, which is good. You know, that works for them. People like that a lot. I have a cousin who's a huge Christina Aguilera fan. She's like her favorite singer of all time. Um, but she likes the the glamour and the flash of her music. You know what I mean? Whereas Adele is definitely more understated. She uh, she tends to not be so flashy. It's a, it's a lot, often a lot about her and the song, um, which I think appeals to a lot of people. And uh, just out of curiosity, you know, she had such a vast uh, library of songs uh, over her, her career in the years she's been doing it. Why did you pick this one song in particular? Does it hold a special meaning for you? Um, I would say it's also very. I think the song is also very personal, and mm -hmm. sometimes just like you want, um, like just like um, sit along and we're doing a late night and just listen to it and then just trying to feel comfort. I mean, sometimes maybe um, and cry you... in your room. <laughs> yeah, sure. <laughs> but I think sometimes like. 
as I mentioned, like I think pop songs always kind of have even more direct uh, approach to um, our feelings, emotions, and sometimes when it's also the way you for me I can reflect myself toward my professional learning music, and sometimes it's just you know life is hard, and sometimes it's like mm-hmm. there's so many things just don't go the way as you expected. And that's why I think sometimes listening to songs like this, just having, just just to uh, like listen to to it, and then maybe just think through a lot of things by yourself, yeah, and just trying to evaluate how what you did right, what you did wrong, um, and just trying to like feel like okay, I shouldn't do it next time, or maybe I should need to do well next time, and maybe just make myself feel better, you know, just to get all the every goals that I wanted plan for. Mm-hmm. My sister calls it a feels playlist, where you sort of yeah. just you you sit down, you put it on, and it's all songs that make you sort of just do exactly what you just said, reflect, and and if you need to give a good cry, mm-hmm. and then you know it, it's like emotionally cathartic, um, yeah, which it definitely seems like the kind of song that that would that would work well for that. Um, definitely. All right. Well, I mean, those were all of my questions. So before I uh, pass it to Sean to close us out, I just want to say thank you, Junwen, so much for being here. You had some really great insight into really all of these pieces. And uh, I certainly hope to see you back here soon. Yeah, definitely. Thank you for having me. I really enjoyed it. Sean? Yeah, sure. I just realized um, I gestured, and you're you're <laughs> over here for me, but I don't know if that's where I am for you. No, I, that you, you kind of pointed right at me, so I knew when my my cue was to come in. Um, Junwen, I just want to say, um, I think everyone knew about you at Ithaca College, and there were whispers about how great of a performer, musician, artist, and uh, just a great person you are. Um, and all of that was implemented in this podcast. So um, I'm really excited to talk to you again. And hopefully we'll hear from you next time and maybe test you on some piano stuff. Um, yeah, sure. I'll, yeah. yeah, thank you. Yeah. And uh, we'll uh, see you next time. So take care. Thanks, Jun Wen. And next time we will talk about part two of our discussion of the musical hair. My name is Sean Rukunis, that guy with the white t-shirt and glasses. His name is Hunter Sagona. And we will see you next time and keep listening to what you love.